Exes for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out Cage Club at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the many adventures of Marvel's Merry Mutants week after week through their many vaunted titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, and today we have a kick-ass double feature for you. Later on, our team is going to be taking a look at Marauders, but first up, we have an ex-legend who has made his mark all across the Marvel Universe, and some universes inside of the Marvel brand. Scotty Young was amazing enough to take some time to come in and talk about about the incredible Strange Academy, which our team has been covering for a few months now, as well as talk about his history. Now, everybody might not realize this, but because she's on every team right now, everywhere, but for a number of years, Ileana was nowhere to be found in the Marvel Universe, and it was Scotty Young's work alongside Kyle and Yost in the pages of New X-Men that eventually returned her to the Marvel Universe. Subsequent writers would take those threads and expand on them, and now Ileana is a powerhouse running through multiple titles throughout the Marvel Universe. We also talk about his incredible work on the Oz series, as well as his independent creator work like I Hate Fairyland. The guy is as down-to-earth as you could want him to be, and this segment was incredible. Not to mention some of the insane insight he gave us into things like Jonathan Hickman's pitch session for House of X. I can't even. I hope you guys enjoy it as much as we enjoyed making it. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Hey, everyone, I am Ravi, and you can find me at Age of Polaris on Twitter. Hello, I'm Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Bento. You can find me on Twitter. Type it in, trust me, you'll find me, and you'll see even more of me in June. This is going to be exciting. Well, guys, so as always, our amazing team, I'm always so excited to introduce everybody, but when we get to introduce a special guest star, it's it's always, you know, so exciting, right? And one of the things that I'm just, I, I'm getting too excited, but everybody, I just want to say, number one, welcome Scotty Young to the show. Welcome. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Okay, and I thought I'd be cool about it, but I just we have to start with you're basically responsible for the modern renaissance of Ileana. Mm-hmm. So I, I just need to start with thank you because we have spent so many months on this show praising the living daylights out of everything Ileana. And it was your search, uh, your quest for magic, yep. right, that brought her back in in the pages of New X-Men and, you know, that Kyle and Yost run following up on the Nunzio and Weir, uh, Nunzio D. Philippus and Weir run. You know, it's two runs that were so strong in a row. And your work is such a successfully transformative piece for the X-Men that I don't know if you've ever gone on eBay and seen how much that trade goes for. No. But, oh, 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 several hundred dollars. Really? For the complete, yeah. yeah. People crazy. are so enamored of that turning point. And it was also such a dynamic shift in X-Men art where you could see that there was a desire to be a little bit more outside the box right. than necessarily. And, you know, don't get me wrong, the, the hitting the burn note and the, and the hitting the Cockrum note and hitting the Perez note, you know, those sort of modern staples, right. Where everybody learned how to put figures from Kirby and we grew from there. Right. You know, 
not to say anything negative of that, but to create a, a breadth and a depth of work is so important, right. right? So I just had to get that out of the way. I thought I'd be cool, and I thought I'd take ten <laughs> seconds. Appreciate that. That was um, I. I got really lucky in the timing of that. I knew that I was coming on to kind of wrap that series up, and I had known Craig and Chris for a long time. We had I'd actually worked with them on some animation stuff, so it's cool to come and work on the X Men stuff. And when they when they said they were we were bringing Magic back, I thought, wow, this is really cool. And I found it to be a really cool opportunity to go in and design, do a little bit of a new spin on some of those characters. And and, and like Pixie and really take a chance to, I think, youth them down a little bit. I always, I love youthful characters. Obviously, Strange Academy is a school book. I loved Generation X growing up, um, New Mutants. So I really wanted to go in there and like de-age them a little bit. We tend to always age our characters up when we draw them. And I, I really, so I, I loved that run. But yeah, being able to bring her back was, was a pretty special moment. It's awesome. So now I know, Robbie, you're a big Ileana fan. Mm-hmm. Right. So you came to Strange Academy. Had you read any Scotty, any of Scotty's work before that? Not much other than Quest for Magic. One question I have is, what was your inspiration for creating Zoe? I really wanted to make sure that we rep- tried our best to re- represent as many, many people in the world as we could. You know, and really sit down and, and hopefully give everybody who reads this book something to, some a character to attach themselves to. We accidentally created a huge cast. I didn't mean for it to be so many. <laughs> Um, we that's funny, right? Because we were like, okay, there's going to be like four or five main characters, but I'll create these other characters as like, they'll pop in and out of panels. And then as I started writing scripts, I just kept adding them all in every page. And I'm sure Umberto is like freaking out because he's like, Zoe is very much a desire to attach some roots to New Orleans, which we had decided to uh, set the book, give a little bit of, you know, we knew that, I knew that Dr. Strange was not going to be the head of the school. He was going to help create the school, but I wanted Dr. Voodoo to run it, you know, to be the, the headmaster of the school. I wanted a Dr. Voodoo connection already in New Orleans. So I thought it would be kind of cool if like the, you know, the great, great, great granddaughter of one of his early mentors was going to be attending the school. So at some point in the story, we can see a little history. Another big thing is Umberto had some designs. Like when I pitched him this book and he, he instantly said yes to coming on and drawing it, I pitched him him like some of the characters and stuff and then he already had some sketches from different some just random kid character sketches and he had one very similar to zoe that was very kind of like you know like a voodoo kind of so and and when i had told him that um spoilers for everybody but when i had told him that i want that i want a character who has you know a secret and i these secrets are layered obviously and we're using metaphors and things like that but i was like her secret is she's actually dead and you know she's playing with pretend you know wearing a different mask she's embarrassed of what she looks like even though you know, and that's why we have the moment with Desi. But um, so, yeah, he already kind of had a character design that was great. So I was like, I think that's the Zoe character. So, you know, he and I have known each other for a long time. I mean, I was influenced by him when I was starting off. So like, it's crazy for me to now be collaborating with him. Yes, yeah, so that's a little background on Zoe. And then some of the stuff, that's the initial stuff. But a lot of times I'm finding these characters the day that I'm writing that script, you know, like, you know, the scene with Desi and Zoe in the library, I Oh, one of my favorites issue two or three maybe i can't remember which which issue i'm so i'm ahead right yeah i'm like writing issue 12 now so it's oh. 
So like, it's going to make it to 12. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, was, that scene, like as I started writing it, I was like, I think this might be a good, good place to have a moment, you know, where, where one character sees somebody's true self and loves it. And, but doesn't also maybe understand that it's not okay to step <laughs> over that line, you know, and, and you can't take away somebody's agency or, you know, owns choice to decide when to reveal that side of themselves. So, you know, there, I think there was a lot of, a lot of lessons there, but I didn't know that until I was writing the scene of their conversation. A lot of times I'm just sitting in a room like, okay, my plot will say kids are in the library. Kids are fighting monster. You know, blah, blah, blah. That's my plot. <laughs> and then, like, when I get in the scene, I'm like, okay, Zoe's putting books back and wait a minute. I wonder, I wonder if Dusty likes Zoe, right? Like I'm just like having, <laughs> I'm just thinking of stuff like that. So that's kind of, that's where they get created. They get kind of created in the moment, kind of like improv. Oh now, my God. We're also reading the ever-loving shit out of uh, Savage Avengers, which is a magical romp through insanity. We're getting so much Doctor Voodoo. That's Jerry, right? Yeah, Jerry. He's amazing, and he's doing some amazing stuff with Doctor Voodoo. And one of the things Raven and I have said is that it's like the age of Doctor Voodoo appearing in these dynamic titles that sort of run parallel right Right. now. Raven, I know you have a billion questions. What's your muse for having such a wonderful, diverse cast? I love everything about Strange Academy. I And the funny thing is I, I almost passed the book by, but I happened to see a preview of it in, um, I think it was Ravencroft. And just it, the story grabbed me so quick and just pulled me in. I, oh, where do I go with this? Ah, I'm sorry, I'm fangirling. I will say that the inspiration for, or the muse for such a diverse cast is just li- just life, my life. My family itself is really diverse. Most of my nieces and nephews are multiracial. My sisters have all married and had amazing nieces and nephews that are all of the colors, and it's fantastic. But that's my family, and I see that on a day-to-day basis. And there are little little boys and girls that, that I realize like need more characters out there there that look and sound like them and that and that doesn't just mean like a black kid from new york i'm talking about like mixed race kid from small town central illinois that's also a weird like and so that's a lot of the inspiration is what am i where do i fit in outside of my little box in the little town that i grew up in where do i fit when i go to the bigger place when i'm oh what happens when i meet other people that look like me but aren't like me we're also different that's different you know there's I think there's a lot of stuff, and that then you, then you just move on into regular life. I mean, I've I've worked in comics for 20 years now, so we're a bunch of wacky, you know, outside the box lunatics that come from all walks of life. So again, I think it was just a it was a chance for me to sit down with with Umberto and the editors and and really just you know craft a story that's filled with characters that we can really take a chance to kind of give everybody a, a voice, even if it's just for a page or two here or there, that to see if we can't cover topics that are real topics for today's young people. I'm in my mid forties now. So like, I love that the world is very different than when I was a teenager in the roles. Like we get to talk about a lot of stuff that was not talked about when I was in high school, you know? So I think it's important to be able to have those conversations on the page as well and not have the answers for them, you know, to be able to, but but just to put conversations on the table. You did an amazing job. I'm, I'm 40 now. And like going back and reading this and I'm thinking, oh, it's, it's going to be a bunch of young kids. When I started reading it, oh my God, I felt like I was back in high school. And you like, literally you were just pinpointing stuff that me as an othered type person really faced. I'm half black, half white. I went to a mostly white school. Mm-hmm. 
I had of this particular voice with a large vocabulary. So I never quite fit. And it was right. great to see characters on the page who were so beautifully nuanced and who had these issues and who could address these issues. And yeah, trust me, you, oh man, you nailed it. Even when it's a short scene, it's so beautifully like snug and fits so well. And just, Thank you. oh, it, it, oh, so, it makes me so happy. I'm sorry. I'm so, oh, no, I'm so no apologize. I really appreciate that. We, I think we really did intentionally, like even at the beginning when we were designing the characters, when Umberto was designing the characters, we had a lot of conversations and I definitely really put the mandate down that that I wanted that that I think the book needed all body types and I really 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 hammered home like keeping sexy out of it and I, I'm not talking about attract mm-hmm. I, I'm not talking about like make people unattractive I just meant like let's let's see if we can't lower the what we sometimes do in comics which is instantly go to sexy which I'm not dissing that because I think mm-hmm. there's a place for that but this was a book I wanted to do something a little different with mm-hmm. and be able to present it to all audiences no matter the age or color or sexual orientation or anything i wanted everybody to be able to go like hey i can get this it's not making anybody feel outside the line so we definitely had that all of that stuff you know in mind very early on before any pages were drawn just when we were drawing the characters up i'm gonna go from fanboying at you to i'm hoping fanboying with you and everybody's been waiting for me to bring this up so i'm just gonna get it out of the way (laughs) all right Uh, i am maybe hyper obsessed with ecstatics and have maybe spent far too much of my life dreaming of dupe dead girl and you go girl and to get to see the dead girl reference issues ago which mm-hmm. took it just took my breath away it was like one of those things where it's just like oh the soundtrack to my life is playing for the first time <laughs> and then you know to get a page of dead girl just right. like a page of this mostly obscure character who i'm pretty sure like is actually like i have theories but anyway um how, anyway, how could she possibly exist from Cohen now anyway so um <laughs> I just have to know, was that like, are you a big ecstatics guy, a big Milligan guy? Well, I think, I think Milligan is amazing. I loved, um, I loved his X-Force and ecstatic stuff. I love drawing dupe. (laughs) (laughs) Like such a good character to draw. And honestly, mostly I try my best in little moments like that because so many characters are brand new in Strange Academy and we spend so much time developing them that I know as kind of diehard Marvel fans, that can be a challenge, you know, because usually you're, you want to hop in and get the character so whenever i can if somebody if we need a conversation like that i try to go mine the marvel universe and bring somebody and plug them in and i just thought who better to have to be the counselor uh to a character who just died and came back to life than you know that character i think um it was just a good fit i love when i'm gonna be like oh oh that's a dead girl let's do it and and i get the fanboy out because i'm like oh i can't wait to see how umberto draws dead girl you know yeah that's 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 magical it's like like i'm a fan and i'm asking umberto to do commissions for me except he's doing in a book i'm like uh i want a dead girl (laughs) you are also a bit famous for your con commissions policy my sketching was dice rolling because it just got to a place where there was too many requests i wanted to come up with a lottery system and one time i was uh i went away to germany and in Europe, you, you sketch inside of inside of the books if they buy them. Like that's tradition there. But to do it, you had to get in line, buy the book, then you go get in my line, or you go get in the line, and once you get up to the line, you roll dice. And if you get doubles, then you get a sticker on your receipt. And that means when I get to my signing, 
you get a sketch. So I was like, that's a cool lottery system. So I started bringing dice to conventions with me. And that's, if you got into my line and you wanted a sketch, you still had to pay. You didn't get it free. But to get on the list or to get your spot, you had to roll doubles on the dice. So a cool side effect of that, a byproduct of that was like, it kind of turned the atmosphere at my table into really fun kind of back and forth. And it and honestly gave, there's a lot of people that are very nervous at conventions, right? Like, <laughs> like what? a no. lot of us, we're all comic book people. Like a lot of us sit in our rooms and read all the time. I sit in a room and draw all the time. So sometimes it could definitely be like a shock to the system when you go to these rooms filled with thousands of people. And then again, we're, we've all been there where we're getting ready to meet one of somebody who we've been like, like looking up to for a long time. And you're like, Ugh. This actually helped create like a cool icebreaker. You know, we could have a little fun and joke around about rolling dice. So even if you lost, we could have a little fun with it. And so I found that it actually ended up being a very cool kind of social, I don't know, like a social handshake that I could do with people and, and help give them a little, um, like I said, icebreaker so they don't feel as nervous and just see like, oh, we're just having some. You know, that is so true of conventions. I feel like I, I make an indie book and one of the things that there are people that are even like, I'm like, you really can't be nervous to meet me. I I, you're not allowed to be that's not acceptable and right. you know so for that that scale to be so severe even to that extent the idea that you can thrust your fandom into this experience of a hundred thousand people across four days for some right. of these events and it be this perfectly social experience is overwhelming but it's also like hard and sad because now i miss it right and like right. i i keep thinking of all the cosplays i'm not getting to do right and it's uh kind of killing me and but so you know, is there something you miss the most about conventions? Well, first and foremost, I just, I miss my friends doing this job. And I've been doing this for 20 years. So, so many people that I know I've met at conventions over the years. And some of my best friends in the world are, are people that I meet up with four or five times a year at various conventions in the world. For example, like uh, Gabrielle Bond, Fabio Moon, wonderful, wonderful comic book writers and artists of things like Day Tripper and Umbrella Academy and Casanova. Casanova. Like those are those are two of my best friends for Brazil. And I like I look forward to San Diego every year, not because of Comic Con, but because that's the time that I get to go have breakfast with them. And then you know we cut out of the convention early and go have drinks at the at the hotel bar and and chat about you know our favorite books that we read that year. And that's special to me. And like, oh, like things like that are, are taken away. But also, I mean, it definitely is difficult to not have that connection with the readers sitting in a room so much and creating it. You, It's easy to forget that it's being consumed. I mean, it's kind of how I discovered you guys is I literally was sitting at home one night. I think my wife had already went to bed. Like she went to bed early that night or something. I was just watching TV and somehow like I almost never click on these links. Like, you know, the podcast link. I don't know. I don't know what it was. I think maybe in the conversation back and forth, the, but probably it might have been you I don't know I can't remember somebody said something that made me be like oh that's that's a pretty accurate take on on my book and and so I was like oh, I'll just click on this and then you guys were so kind about the book and I was like oh but also you got it like you really got it and you really got the characters and that was refreshing so I was like oh cool and that's what I'm talking about that's things like that are also what I miss about conventions when you're like you meet people in real life where you're like oh man it's really cool that you got that you know like because sometimes you don't like I write it or draw it and it comes out months later so I think I've nailed it but then the book comes out and I'm so far ahead that I'm like I never get to have that that back and forth that did it work did it not work is it did I pull it off like or did I get it wrong you <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, it's always a possibility, too. 
I mean, if you ever need readers, like we are, right. we are so totally here and we can keep a secret. Trust me. And like one of the things I love the most about the diversity of our team is it is, you know, an actual pretty diverse assemblage of voices and sort of character. And so I'll be honest with you, it they were kind to the book because they liked it because there's mm-hmm. times I am like working really hard to edit these things friendlier. <laughs> I'm like, ah, I got to find 30 minutes in this segment. Oh God. So, you know, the idea that Strange Academy is this sort of, it's sort of its own thing too. Is there a lot of like uh, involvement from Marvel on like, hey, that's not what Ileana's doing right now. Because I-, I don't know if you know, but Scarlet Witch is cur- currently persona non grata on Krakoa. Mm-mm, she is the right. pretender and right. she's the imposter. And right. it, it, like, there was a bit of, how are she and Ileana in the same sequence together? What's happening? Somebody call Xavier. And there was like a little bit of like, everybody kind of clutched the pearls, right? Um, but oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. That it's comics and right. it's number one, funny books. And number two, you can put them in the order that makes sense. Right. It, we call that, we call it dancing between raindrops. That's what, uh, in Mar- you know, in the offices or when we're on calls with the editors and everything, it's like, I got a call the other day about something that's, happening in this book and that book and so this and i was like well is it happening before this or after this and there and and the answer was like well it happens between the raindrops so meaning somebody reads that book we can if questions come up we can say oh will it happen on that tuesday between the between monday and thursday you know like oh you just didn't read that book right (laughs) that's the beauty of comics like we we're all used to reading things where the panel the gutter between the panels that could be five minutes that could be five years you know, so it's the same thing between issues or that's the beauty of this kind of cool improv where we're all doing this dance. But some of us, you know, we got to pretend that we were in sync, but we're not. Right. So for us, with Strange Academy, it is very much a in the Marvel Universe book. It's very plugged into the Marvel Universe. But we also have because of some of the goals that we want to do with the story. It's also very much a book that can, for the sake of entertainment, have characters like that in the same book, because in four years, we want you to pick up strange academy and read it in a, in a way that felt like man i'm reading this this project um and four years from now you might not remember that in x-men 27 iliana and you know what i mean like you won't remember yeah. that part of it we don't mm-hmm. and we don't want to we're trying not to be so um shackled to exactly what's going on at the exact same time if something's too big absolutely but a lot of times i don't shy away from that that way i don't i really really so i think our goal really is to have strange academy be a book that you feel like is absolutely a marvel book and it has it's populated with all your favorite characters and you love seeing that but also you could read it now in 10 years or in 20 years and never feel lost or never feel dated that it had to be tied to whatever crossover event you know we just had the king and black stuff go on you know and and they marvel was really cool with with being like nope you guys are you got you don't have to tie into that if you don't want um, which i think the king and black stuff was so cool but it wouldn't have made sense at the beginning of Strange Academy to all of a sudden tie them in when we don't, we're not finished developing them anyway. So mm-hmm. Marvel's been really, really supportive of that for this book. And they're, they're really, really behind this book, which is amazing. And if there's room for Amanda Sefton to come in and do some day tripper magic, I got a huge list of magical characters in my file that I'm just always looking over like, who's okay, who's time? You know, she's got that cute little Bamf doll. Everyone loves the little Bamf doll. I'm just you saying. Guys, it's going to be pretty cool when you guys see the, the Asgard field trip coming up. Every, everybody's hands just went up very excitedly. <laughs> 
I'm sorry. I'm, I love all the day trips and the field yeah, trips so and all the little cute. adventures. Yeah, man. I, I'm. I, that's my favorite stuff. I've seen some feedback that are like, we want more school, cl like classroom stuff. And I'm like, I didn't really spend a lot of time in class at school. So. But also, I like, want more. That's the only thing I got. Right. Well, that's. I, I think for me, I love doing nods to classroom stuff. That's really fun. But. I also think that, all right, so again, this is going to date me. There were two shows that came out. There was Studio... Um, Studio 60 and 30 Studio Rock happening at the same time. Rock at the same time, right? Studio 60, which is an Aaron Sorkin situation, which should be amazing. Should because be. Because Aaron Sorkin is a fantastic writer. But part of the thing that I felt that that show misstepped on was they showed you actual sketches. like, mm. And the sketches weren't funny. No. Because that's not what the show was about. The shows weren't about sketches, but they would lean in and show you actual sketches. Will be the very right. model of a modern network TV show. Right. Oh. You know? So now you take 30 Rock, who just would, you would go in at the tail end of a sketch. And right, it was my baloney. Right. Oh my God. That's the best scene ever. My, my mayonnaise, the homie. It's just like so cool. So. The, I love that 30 Rock, weirdly enough, did it right by not leaning in and mimicking sketches. They just insinuate that they did them off camera. And Studio <laughs> 60 actually did them. And I feel that way a little bit about class. I'm going to show you classroom stuff, but I'm going to show you right before the bell rings. Because that's more interesting than me pretending that I'm a good teacher. Like, it, you know, like, or I really don't think anybody wants to read five pages of language arts. You know, like somebody teaching <laughs> Um, so yeah, I always no. keep that. I always keep that that Thirty Rock Studio sixty in mind when I'm deciding what to show in my stories and what not to show. And uh, speaking of things you could teach a class on, I have to ask a little bit about it because it's my husband's favorite thing in the world. Oz is my husband's favorite fictional universe, oh, that's and awesome. your guys' adaptation, you and Eric Shanauer's uh, sort of. And I always joke that like I kind of call this like the EGOT Oz because. Yeah. It sort of it hits so many of the books that are long out of print, and I had a conversation with an X Men editor, and I was like, you know, I know you guys have Scotty Young do covers all the time, but you know, maybe you could get him to do interiors like New X Men again. And the editor laughed at me a little bit and was like, he's doing those Oz books, and right. he'll do them till he's done. And <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. And so <laughs> we collected them as they came out, and then the gorgeous Omnibus came out, and I know it's one that Marvel's reprinted a number of times because it's so popular, yeah. and. I just, what was it like working on this pinnacle adaptation of Oz in a time where it was so difficult to make and craft a developed Oz narrative unique from the original, unique from Wicked, unique from Oz the Great and Powerful with the Franco brother that was also in the room? Right. James Franco. James Franco. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm like, ah, not I, Dave. I, I, I try and forget that. I agree. So hard. I agree. I agree with you. <laughs> um, it was. It changed my life. That book changed everything about my career and my life because I was working on New X Men and I was climbing, the, you know, the the quote unquote the the ladder, the Marvel ladder, right? Like I had done some miniseries here and I was doing single character stuff, so it's like I got. First, it was Legend of Spider Clan, and then I did Human Torch, and then I filled in on. I ended up with Venom, and then I went to. Then X Men was like, New X Men was like, okay, I'm now I'm on a team book, but I'm like not X Men. I'm the side X Men book, you know. So I was like, all right, I'm like next will be, you know, will I get a single character book or whatever? And you're trying to climb the superhero ladder, even though weirdly enough, it really wasn't naturally what I felt like I fit on. I I always was way more of a kind of wacky cartoony guy, but I was like, well, I 
work in comics and I work at Marvel, so this is the things that I need to be doing. And so when my X-Men run was coming to an end, they had called and said, hey, we, we think we know what we want to do next, if you are interested. And they Eric Eric was not on board yet. They were they wanted to talk to him, or they wanted to offer it to him, but they were coming to me first. And they said, we want you to do... It was, they, back then, they had a line called Marvel Illustrated. And yeah. they had done, like, Treasure Island, and they were doing a couple other classics, ad- adaptations. Later on, Janet K. Lee would do, I yes. think it was uh, Emma. Sense, Emma and Sense and Sensibility. Yeah, um, I love Janet's work. I have, like, several Janets hanging around my house. Yeah, she's great. They said, do you want to do... We'd like to do the Oz books. And here's the weirdest thing was, I got that call the day after... The night before, I had had a people over to my house. We lived in Chicago at the time. We had a bunch of people over to our house to, like, watch, to drink and watch Return to Oz. So we had literally just watched it the night before. Like none of us had seen it in years. We're like, let's watch Return to Oz tonight. The next day I get the offer to adapt the Wizard of Oz novels. And I was so torn because I was like, God, that sounds so fun. But also that's like career suicide. Like I'll, because kids books didn't sell that well then, you know, like it was a real challenging market and manga was really popular. There's so many weird things. I was like, I work at Marvel. I'll disappear. Like I'll come off X-Men and I'll go draw this children's book. And just kind of vanish. And so I actually turned it down. And to Marvel's credit, they came back to me a couple times over the course of the next two weeks. And each time they would just like make it a better offer. Like you could take as long as you want. We could do as many issues as you want and blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't about money. I mean, I already, I was under contract anyway. So I already, that was all taken care of. This was really just about like what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And eventually I was like, okay, if you guys can give me like a cover gig, because at that time I didn't have any cover gigs either. I wasn't a cover artist and I never thought I would be a cover artist, which is also a weird turn in my world. But so they gave me covers on a, on a series called Cable Deadpool and like a kid's, uh, like a Spider-Man Adventures book. And so I was like, as long as I can keep my foot in the regular Marvel universe, then I'll go over here. I'll draw this Oz book for a year, which I thought it would last. I, I thought it would last six issues or eight issues. And I was like, I'll do this. And then I'll come back and I'll try to get a Spider-Man job or whatever. But what I found out really quick when I started just sitting in my sketchbook and figuring out how I want to approach this artistically, I, I realized like, oh my gosh, I've not been drawing how I draw all these years. Like I was finding out like I like to draw like this and it was felt all of a sudden like work felt fun. Like work didn't feel hard. I didn't feel scared to sit at the table anymore. I didn't. I wasn't afraid if people were going to like it or not. I was just kind of like, wow, this is fun. And, and, and Jean, my colorist came on and we just started like doing tests and figuring it out and and then we did kind of just disappear and not pay attention to anybody and nobody really paid attention to us while we were getting this is before the book came out and so we're just working and as we turned in pages the editors and stuff were like holy shit like this is we didn't expect this to look like this so different than what we've published so different and um instantly what was weird is instantly people started like editors and stuff like oh you're you're gonna win an eisner for this and i was like whatever like that (laughs) I, i will never in my life time when an Eisner so just stop saying that so we it started to get good buzz but I still didn't think anything of it which and then it came out and we were super wrong it sold really great they took the Marvel Illustrated name away because they were like you know what this is something different than what we've done in that line so we're not gonna we're not gonna call it anything other than Oz so the wonderful Wizard of Oz so we we came out it sold really well the trades sold great like we were out selling superhero books you know like so it was and then for the next five years that's all I did like I just drew Oz and it, I didn't ever think that I would have the opportunity in today's market to be on the same book for that long um, and, and you know that book that you're holding that really huge omnibus collection I often say like 
that's such when I say it changed my life, it changed my life because inside of th- those two covers of like however many 800 or how, a thousand, page, I don't even know how many pages it is. Inside of that book, I lived in like four houses. I got a couple dogs. Um, I had a kid. My younger brother had a heart transplant. My dad passed away. Like so much life happened inside that book that changed. So it's like, it really is this mark turning point of my real, my personal life. But then also career wise, it gained Eric and I so many awards and accolades out in the world and library awards. And, and for me, a connection to audiences that I was not, I didn't realize were out there and I was tapping into, you know, whether it be kids, um, you know, uh, adults, parents of all of a sudden I had a, a book. Oz was huge in the gay community, which was really, great to be plugged into you know new audiences there and get fresh perspectives and everything like that so it was for me it changed everything about everything in my career where I realized that there's not that I didn't know that but it, it gave it connected me with new audiences and readers and showed me how I like to draw and and after that when Oz was coming to an end when we got to that last one I was like I think I'm I think I'm this is a good stopping point because it's like bombs that was bombs original end you know that's where he was originally gonna end I was like I don't think that I can go back and draw a superhero book like that's why Rocket Raccoon was the next one because I was like they actually asked me to come in and do a fill-in arc on or they asked me to come in and do a run on Guardians of the Galaxy after Oz and I was like I don't think I can I don't like I don't draw like that anymore like I I said but I can take I think Rocket and Groot if I separate them I could do a wacky space romp book with aliens and animal talking animals and trees. That makes more sense to me because that's kind of what Oz was, right? Like a version of that. I did that, and and right after that, I hate Fairyland. So, it was uh, yeah, that was kind of uh, that's what Oz was. Oz taught me how to be a better comic book artist. It, uh, it it gave me time to get used to a book to where I was faster as, as a comic book artist. So I had more time in the day. I would finish my Oz pages by about noon or one. And then I had the rest of the day to start developing things like I Hate Fairyland and Middle West and a lot of the books that I've gone on to write and draw later. Um, it gave me time to do some of that stuff. So it was great. That's, um, that's so amazing. I, I That should be the afterword. Mm-hmm. Right, you should just just stick that in the next printing. Oh, well, thank right? you. They re they've reprinted the entire run in three mini digest volumes. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so they the, the third one just came out. So yeah, there's there's versions of that out there now. And I believe Strange Academy is doing digest size as well. Yep, we're doing the, the six by nine graphic novel size that kind of fits in with the um, which just came out last week, I think. Um, I think so, yeah. Uh, yeah, that fits within that you know the kind of the scholastic size that you're seeing a lot in in the bookstore market. The trades, are, you know, Raina Smile and and that's a, you know, my trade. I made it that size. <laughs> I was like, we're going tiny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love it. And it harkens back to the tsunami books, like Runaways, and it just it has the right vibe for me. And right? Human Torch, which I did. Yeah. <laughs> I really love the guest appearances that you have throughout Strange Academy, whether it's like Agatha Harkness or Thor, which I would have definitely had the same reaction <laughs> as Emily just like staring <laughs> at him, blank face. Oh my God. Rocket and Groot. Oh yeah, that was really fun too. How do you make the decision over time to d- decide on certain characters to make a guest appearance in each issue? A lot of times it's just like the scene with Thor where Strange is talking to, you know, giving Emily the, the ring and, you know, kind of apologizing to her and just having a conversation with her. You know, I, I'm writing that scene and then I realize like, okay, I need to get her out of here, mm-hmm. but I, I need Strange to stay. So, okay, somebody needs to come in and talk to him. 
and then so who would that be? And I'm like, okay, well he's an, you know he's attached to the Avengers and stuff, so we'll have I'll get an Avenger. And I'm like, but who? What character then could have also make Emily fumble through you know as she's walking out? And I'm thinking like, I mean I'm pretty straight, but I, like I definitely question that if Chris Hemsworth was in front of me, right? <laughs> that man is so fucking beautiful, it like hurts my heart. Um, so I was like, I feel like if you are a Midwestern kid and an Asgardian like supermodel walked into the room you'd be like Ugh! so i was like you know what thor that's it thor is going to be in that scene agnes was like that was just that was literally me going like okay i need another class google marble magic users just to refresh me and so i'm just looking looking i'm like oh yeah she's oh cool because she has a cat and emily has cat beast now and so and they'll have a little moment and it's honestly weird fun things like that where at any moment i just want to tie readers to the marvel universe but also give the characters somebody fun to play off of in the moment. And then Rocket and Groot was just, I, that was me bringing my, that was me bringing my boys back. You know, I spent, I spent a couple of years writing them and drawing them and then writing them as well. And uh, I just have their voices down so well that I was like, it, it'd be really easy for me to plug them in. So now uh, to, to jump back to X-Men a little bit, right? I don't know if you've followed quite how extensive a, a Marvel legacy you've left by virtue of bringing Ileana back. But Ileana didn't appear for inconsistent titles for over 15 years. Right. And now she appears in something like a book a week. Right. Right. And uh, your take on this soul sword was so different than what had come before. You know, the original uh, soul sword by Sal Buscema mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, the, the Cockrum look, you know, anybody who came onto the book and gave it that very classic sword look, you came in and you were kind of like, ah, we're going to update things a little bit. Your legacy. Now everybody redesigns magic's weapon when they draw right. her It's like this amazing thing. How do you feel about like the fact that you're inspiring people by the virtue of how you did it was just New X-Men's an interesting moment there because it really illustrates a little bit of youthful arrogance in that I just thought that when you got a new book, you just did redesigns of it. It was It's so weird that it didn't even occur to me to just look at the issues that came before me and just draw the characters just like that. Like I literally got hired to come on, I think, I forget which issue, 37 or 35 or something like that I started on. I just, as soon as they said, hey, do you want to do an X-Men? I was like, yeah, cool. They sent me PDFs of the other books. I got the list of characters and I instantly redesigned them all. Like <laughs> Hellion, and, and I didn't even care that it was like the next day. Like Hellion went from having like a little crew cut and I instantly grew his hair long. Like, so readers probably read it and then saw my Hellion and were like, what's going on? Like I just instantly grew his hair long and drew him different. Read um, it at the time. We were all like, what the fuck? And like, I remember it was exciting. It right. was exciting. And the I instantly, oh, this is the first thing I did when I got the job. I called Craig or I called Chris Yost and I said, I want an age of every character. Like, I don't, just give me the ages. I've, I have the designs, but I want the actual ages. I can't tell how old these kids are. And Pixie was like 12. And I was like, what? Like, nobody draws her 12. So, yeah, so I was like, Okay, well, instantly I'm going to make her eyes big black marbles, like, because she's a fairy, you know, so I'm going to, and I'm a big fairy tale, you pixie. So I was like, instantly. So I just started doing that, not even considering that I'm like, so that redesigns thing to me is just like the, the arrogance of youth of like, this is my book. But then I love that. But I also grew up loving people like Chris Pacello and, and Umberto Ramos that when they came on and they got their hands on that. I mean, to me, the definitive version of Ileana now is Chris Pacello's. He, he's the one that does 
the giant, like the giant Final Fantasy sword. Yeah, the fucking Buster Blade or the Cloud Strife of it all. <laughs> yeah, the Cloud Strife sword. That, I mean, Final Fantasy VII is, is my lifeblood. When I, I, like, I was, again, I'm old. I don't know how old everybody is, but I, I, yeah, I pre ordered that. I was at, I was at Games, that wasn't GameStop, it was like software, I forget, EB. Electronic uh, electronics Boutique. Yeah, Electronic Boutique. <laughs> I was up in there that day that it came out. I obsess over that. So, so Chris Michello's Ileana for me, when he gave her like the spiked shoulder pads and the giant cloud sword, that to me is her look now. Like even when I do the little version of her, I don't care what her current design is. I draw <laughs> that version of her. <laughs> I love the change up that you you did with her costume and with the way you draw her because she is magic and magic tends to be you know, like fluid. But right. I also love how you adjusted her character just a little bit. The really old versions of magic, you know, she's kind of childish and a little too impulsive. She still has that impulsivity, but like there's just there's so much more to her, and wow. you really helped to step up that evolution of that character. And that oh, well, thank you, thank oh. you. Made oh, love her, love it. Thank you. What X Man did you never get to work on directly that you would love to work on? Oh, that's a really good question. I absolutely love Chamber. Yes, <laughs> but like Generation X era, era Chamber, you know, in, like bandaged, wrapped, energy popping chest Chamber. Scarfing it. Yes. Yeah, like I, I mean, Strange Academy exists mostly out of the fact that like Zeb Wells and I were determined to try to bring Generation X back, you know, 20, 15 years ago when we were first break, you know, in at Marvel. He and I kept, we, we were pitching hard on a Generation X book. I've always loved Chamber. I don't know, I, here's the thing, I don't know what my take is on him. I just like, I like the way he looks and his drawing. So I don't know that I would have a good story on him. Man, it's so hard. Like which one, because I'd have to want to draw it too. So that, the characters have to be fun to draw. It'd probably be some sort of villain book. I love, I love X villains like Sabretooth. I was about to say, I'd love to see you do like an all oh. the next feral squad, you know, Dockin yeah. and Sabretooth and Wolverine yeah. and X-23 and Gabby and I would buy a lot of uh, also like like that whole X Force era, the cable and like mm. new mutant new mutiny stuff. Like that that's kind of my jam. Like you know, boom boom or meltdown, whatever. Mm -hmm. First she was meltdown, or she meltdown later or boom boom first. She was Forget. boom boom boomer meltdown time bomb <laughs> meltdown drunk. Uh, <laughs> she's had a journey. Yeah, she has. And, you know, she was created as such a one-off, forgettable character. And that's kind of like right. the hallmark of what makes X-Men work. When they yeah. try and say, this character is the big thing. They... Right. But when they're like, this character exists, everybody's like, give me Pixie, right? Yeah. And it winds up being a really transformative experience for the X-Men. Now, right. okay, what Marvel character would you want to work on in general? Like, if Marvel was like, anyone, do the book. You know, like, I'm thinking like Stan Lee and Mobius doing Silver Surfer Parable. Right, like, who right. would you want to work on? Oh man, I've I've done so many things at Marvel. Um, I think there is a really cool, weird, funky, cosmic, Fantastic Four in me somewhere. Just in a really, really weird, like, make it fucking weird, right? Like trippy, cosmic, like throwback to Kirby's level stuff. I think that's anything that I want to do now. I, it's like I want to just really retro the shit out of it in a way, and and maybe like, do you guys read Next Wave? Oh my god, it's my entire my, so my entire being is also Bloodstone. It's my and Aaron. Yeah. Yeah, and the captain the captain i freaking love next wave so much so i what i would like to do is take any of these books that we're used to to, to reading in one voice and do my 
I hate Fairyland, Rocket Raccoon, Deadpool situation on. You know, well, it, it, anything. Deadpool is honestly, if you would have asked me this question five years ago, the answer would have been Deadpool. That's also why I did Rocket Raccoon and Groot because I actually asked if I could take over Deadpool after Oz because that just, which is also why you ended up getting Rocket Raccoon and I hate Fairyland so close together after, which is because that's where my that's a lot where my writing voice lands. So yeah, I think like uh, take Fantastic Four and slam Next Wave into it, and that'd be a fun book to do. Well, now I'm going to be looking out for it actively forever. I would love I'm just that. Going to be reading so previews. <laughs> now, unfortunately, one of the amazing voices who has so dedicatedly loved your title this whole time is unable to be here today. But he wanted us to ask a question because it's been him pushing it a little bit each week. He wants to know: Have you thought about Strange Academy TV? Have you thought about people you could imagine in the roles? Have you thought about you know needing a writing staff of comic book podcasters? <laughs> um, I will I get not... coffee. I will make that coffee. I will get so on the cool, plane right? and I will fly it directly to you. I'm just saying. There's so many fantastic young actors out there right now. That's a great, great question that I would have to really sit down and think about. There's nobody quite in mind yet. I will say, I don't know what role she'd play. I watched one movie and I'm watching a show right now and I, I, I don't know what her name is yet. Yeah, she played Beverly in, in It. She was in a movie with Paul Bettany on Amazon Prime called Uncle Frank. So Sophia Lillis. That's that's her. She is so fantastic. It's an Alan Ball written and directed, which she did Six Feet Under, and but and Paul Bettany's in it, and she's in it. She is fantastic in it. We just watched it and we loved it. And then she's also in a show right now based on a graphic novel by acquaintance of mine, Charles Forsman. He also wrote Into the Fucking World, which is the Netflix series, and this is the next one. I don't know what role she'd play, but she's fantastic. I'm getting to that age where I don't remember anybody's names anymore, but Arya from Game of Thrones. Oh yes. I want yes. her to play somebody because she's phenomenal. <laughs> she is just I awesome. can totally see her doing Desi. I just think she's so amazing. Like she's so so good. Those uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of people out there that would that would just crush this that would crush in roles like that. It's um God, wouldn't that be so cool to see? Yeah. And you know, I, I can't not see it. It's so clearly designed with an accessibility factor. And that's kind of the thing that makes TV powerful, the accessibility factor. If you write a song that sounds really generic, everyone's going to be like, oh, well, that sounds generic. I don't care. But if you write a song about something personal and honest, the idea of the emotion comes through. If you create a diverse group of people by nature, the puzzle pieces are going to interlock differently. And I think that TV vibe is already built in. I'm going to have to do like a fake casting thing Mm -hmm. for my YouTube channel or something. That would be fun. I'm going to have to do, you guys inspired me. I'm going to have to do this now. So one thing that I can't help but notice is the transformation of stylization right now. You know, you never want to compare anything to anything because nothing's, you know, everything's derivative. Nothing's derivative. It's, you know, when I think about how the Oz books were able to take ideas that Neil Gaiman used in Sandman and put them back where they kind of came from, right? Mm -hmm. Like the idea of Merv Pumpkinhead, you know, sort of Mm -hmm. that visualization. And I think one of the things that I love is, for so many years, when I used to have to try and explain Sandman to people, I'd be like, sure, it starts with Drinberg, but it gets to Hempel. And if you can make that leap, good for right. you, but you might just have to let it happen, right? right? I feel like one of the things that we're seeing is a lot more people getting to 
be expressively themselves growing up with the same, you know, the same creators as you. I think about Chris Bacalo. I think about Mm -hmm. Joe Mad. I think about, you know, this sort of powerful deformation of figure to create a new identity and how we're really seeing that with artists like David Baldon on X Factor. And Mm -hmm. I feel in a lot of ways, like there is a responsibility that sort of sources from how Marvel said, lean into the cuties do all the cutie covers, right? right? How do you feel about this generation of adorable, like, you know, ex-babies coming right. out, right? And the way that that is, I mean, it really does kind of trace back to your cover line in a lot of ways. Right. It's always interesting to look at how things work cyclically. I did five, four or five covers to an ex-babies miniseries in 2009. And it was a written and drawn series by Jacob Shabbat. And the book did fine, but nobody, the covers that I did, people were like, cool. Like, because in 2009, we weren't, it just wasn't there yet, right? Mm-hmm. Flash forward to 2012, I do that Midtown Comics exclusive wraparound cover with 30 characters, and you would have thought I created bread, you know? Like, <laughs> like it was like it exploded. And that's just like, so three years go by, there's a cultural shift in things. I would probably imagine that people started having kids and a big, like a lot of our generation were getting older and you had kids, but also we were coming out of a good 10 year era where all of our comics were feeling like screenshotted movies and very heavy. The ultimate, the ultimates line was kind of running comics there for a while. Right. So very good, but heavy and dark material. Um, that's kind of where we were. And just like anything, there's a balance to things when you go heavy and dark for a while, uh, it, the tide turns and things get lighter. So I just think, you know, a fact, 12 different things came together and in, 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 into one and all of a sudden it's like hey i kind of like cute versions of spider-man or i like i want to pl- i want a little plushy of black panther or whatever right like Josh i will never Sharp. understand yeah so i just think i think there's 12 different factors that kind of come together right place right time and i just happen to be there to catch it when when it happened and you know like I, i've had this conversation before where people are like oh my god how did and i'm like i didn't even know i was starting a thing it took me two years to realize that other people thought that that was my only thing where in my mind i was like oh that's my that's the job i do on fridays like mm. i do a, i just do a baby cover at the end of the week and but the rest of the week i'm writing and drawing full comic books and i'm like oh yeah i also once a week do one of those but i didn't realize that there's a huge audience that are like oh no that's just that's who you are. That's what you do. And I'm like, oh, I guess like 500 covers later, you're, you're not wrong. <laughs> I had a hell of a time getting those House of X ones. Oh, I loved those, man. I, like, I loved those because I was, I was, I mean, I've been there since the beginning. I was in the room since the beginning of John, of John pitching that whole thing. So, I mean, the day that he pitched that to the room and the first time we all heard it uh, in the room together, because John's a real close friend of mine. Um, it was like watching a move, like somebody recite a movie to you. Uh, in fact, at some point, somebody like jumped in to ask him a question. I literally said, could you shut up? I'm watching a movie. Because <laughs> <laughs> we were just so into what he was talking about but my favorite thing about all that stuff was like the idea that all these characters could just wear whatever version of their costume that they wanted from any era and so clearly i was leaning into the jokes of that (laughs) i love those covers uh i will thank you guys for again championing the book and talking about it so much but also like i said like getting it and sharing all the aspects of it that i think are important for people to hear so it was it really meant a lot to me and umberto because you guys the things you guys were talking about made us feel like we were we were do it's what we set out to do is working and so it was you guys really uh were 
some of the voices that really clicked with me to make me feel like really good about what we're doing here. You, you honestly, you you really nailed it. Um, They can tell you I'm hard on comic books. She literally refused to read it based on the fact that it was Dr. Strange. We had to like, (laughs) yeah, he's too much of a dick. I can't do this. Then I saw the preview. I'm like, Oh, fine. I'll, I'll I'll read one, (laughs) one for you. And the next thing I know, I'm like, I have to have them all now, please more. And like went back and found them and read them. But yeah, I'm, I'm ridiculously hard about like pacing, if things make sense or not, if a character is coming across correctly. So when you wrote these characters, they really did connect and they really hit that mark. And all your guest appearances of like Doctor Strange, Doctor Voodoo, um, you know, uh, Ileana, Hellstrom, all the, I'm like, it was so perfect. And you could get a sense of the character. It was so beautifully done that like, I, I couldn't find really any fault with it. And Umberto's art just it, like, everything melded. It was so beautiful. It's so great. Like, it's like the work of his career, man. It's just nuts. Really? Yeah. Like he sent those pages of the Hogoth scene where Doctor Strange. Oh, when sorry. I got those, like, you know, I was like, are you fucking mm. kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Like, and then he nailed well that scene at the end of. I'm not. I don't want to spoil it in case people haven't read it. But the scene at the end of seven, mm-hmm. um, I. Literally, like, I feel bad for getting paid to write those pages because I just did. I was like, there's going to be no talking here because Umberto is just going to kill it. And so we're just going to let him kill it. And and he's going to he's going to carry the scene. I mean, I told him, here's what's happening. Uh, but and they were like, do you want any dialogue? Here? I was like, nope, no dialogue here. Just let him let him have his moment. Yeah, no, uh, that that. That, that was that was a beautiful choice because honestly I think it had even more impact without having to put words to it. It was right. Oh, so beautiful. I love getting to write a mushy book at Marvel. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Overall, there's definitely not many books that are currently out that could really compare to how amazing Strange Academy is. Oh, like, thank it, you. It just like because there's so many different parts of it that could resonate with so many different people. It means a lot, and uh, seeing the way like how you write it, how you write the characters, scenes, and everything, it's really inspiring. Thank you. That means a lot. I love hearing that. Thank you so much. And, you know, I've, I've gone on and on. I just, you know, I started with Ileana, oh my God, and I'm going to close out with Ileana, oh my God. The fact that you have done this 20-year cycle on her and you're back at her. I know. Like, you're getting to reap the, the fruits of your hard labor early in your career. It's right. just this really cool synergy that really, it's why comics being a shared medium is so cool. Because wow. you get to pick things back up, and it's amazing getting to see you pick something back up. Well, thank you so much, man. I appreciate that. Hey, everybody, and welcome back one more time. This is Nico here, and in this next segment, Rod, Raven, Drew, and Dante talk about Marauders, which has been one of the flagship titles of the X-Men for the last several years now, and it came out of nowhere. I know for the first few months I made a case that this should change titles with other books, and I just couldn't get my head around the unique and one-of-a-kind voice that Jerry Dugan was injecting into the X-Books, and I couldn't be happier to see how far it's come. Now, the team gets 
more animated than I think we've ever heard them. It was such a pleasure to edit this next segment. There's nothing I could say to enhance this next experience, so I hope you guys enjoy it. Now, as always, if you like what you hear, you may like what you see, so check us out on YouTube where we're putting up videos of the same kind of stuff we're doing here, but with a little bit more freedom and coverage. If you like what you hear, you might want to help us keep the lights on as well, so hop on over to Patreon, which you can find on our Twitter at Excess for Podcast. As always, guys, we love you guys listening. We love making this, and we hope to see you guys. So reach out and keep those Krakoan gateways open. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next segment of X's for Podcast. We're talking about Marauders 18 today. I am Rod. You can find me at Rod, the, on Twitter and Instagram. And today we have with us Raven. Hello, it's Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Bento. You can find me on Twitter mostly, but go ahead, type it in. You'll find me all over the place. And I will be relaunching my Twitch services in June. June. Also with us today, we have Dante. Hi everyone, this is Dante. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Inferno Magic, and we also have joining us today, Drew. Hey, I'm Drew. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drewcifer3. That's at D-R-E-W-S-I-P-H-E-R-3. Perfect. That's the whole cast today. And like I said, we're talking about Marauders 18 with writer Gary Dugan, artist Stefano Cassell, and Matteo Lali. And the color artist is Edgar Delgado. And VC's Corey Petit is letter and production. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, Marauders 18, That was a. F- this was a really fun issue. Raven, what do you think of this issue? Sorry, I'm so? a little hopped up. I've had, I've had a lot of the caffeine this morning, and I also have a lot of thoughts this morning. So. <laughs> Go <laughs> oh ahead, Raven. Go ahead. God. I, I I loved this issue. This this I mean the artwork was beautiful, yes, but I loved this like uppercut to the chin of capitalism. Um, and and in the most Emma Frost way you could possibly get. Cause yeah, they I loved it. They 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 were like train wrecking Verendi's plans left, right, and center. It was beautifully done. So <laughs> I really enjoyed this uh this issue. And there's there was like so much to it. And I love the fact that the writers and artists on this are really kind of pushing us to think outside the box because I had not thought of how you could implement certain mutants uh gifts to be like not only like a super positive thing but like literally the fastest quickest medical care that you could ever find and it was so perfect it was so freaking perfect because it actually made me think differently about how to look at mutant powers and i was like it was it was beautiful it was great i loved it love, love, love. nice what about you dante i thought this was a really solid issue i think the early part with emma making an announcement inviting magneto and xavier there there's a there's a little <laughs> bit of a nod from emma <laughs> Uh, we think as far as her understanding of Moira <laughs> there's mm-hmm. got to be something there but I mean it was just overall just a lot of fun I, Marauders is right up there for me Raven what, what you're saying is absolutely correct like uh, as far as seeing mutants using their powers in different ways to not only benefit Krakoa, but to benefit humans as well. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it was in this issue in particular, it was such a magical moment for me. So I, I love it. Yeah. I've been reading um, like mutant massacre uh, recently. Um, and I've gotten like, that's part, like, you know, I've been with the Morlocks and 
uh, Mask has not been one of my favorite characters. So mm-hmm. to see him actually being put into like a good light in this kind of position, <laughs> it actually like made me happy for the character. And I was like, like, like such a great use for their, their mutant power. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, definitely. I love that in this era of Krakoa, even like outside of Krakoa, we are finding, you know, even quote unquote evil past mutants, like ways in society that they can actually help with their powers instead of just being destructive and killing for them, you know, are messing them up. You can actually use mm-hmm. them for good, which is, you know, what they could have done for a while now. And mm-hmm. did, did anyone else, when we first got like the first page of Marauders, get confused on why Proteus was there at first? Until we obviously got the reveal why he was there. But mm-hmm. I was like, wait, one of the five is there? Are they being superheroes now? What if he dies? Oh no. It's like, uh, what? Mm, oh, oh, okay. I hope he, hopefully he has a uh, security detail with him or something because, uh. right? I feel like Proteus is hard to kill anyway. I mean, we saw that. Well, yeah. When Xavier tried to kill him. So, but <laughs> still. <laughs> I mean, yeah, definitely true. But like, also, it was kind of great that that you get to see him there, so that you get to see him in a role outside of just being part of the five. You know, for rebirth and everything. Because you know, it's like, oh, oh, you're part of five. You're just gonna, you're gonna live underground for the rest of your life, just resurrecting mutants and whatnot, or you know, the daily resurrection of Quentin Choir. Yeah, right. Um, one thing that I wanted to add is we got to see kind of like a little taste of the family dynamic between like mm-hmm. Xavier, you know, Moira and Proteus. So like, I just would like to see that more with like, we, we're, we're getting it a lot with Jean and Scott and, you know, the Summers family. It would be nice to see it with mm-hmm. kind of other families in, you know, in the, the X-Men universe. Yeah. Right, right. I feel like it would have been nice to have like, it would have been uncharistic of Xavier, but mm-hmm. it It'd been nice to have him in the panel in this issue. Be like, hey, Proteus, son, you know, your mom's up there. That's great. I'm so happy that you're happy about seeing her. You know, this is such a great moment, uh, a touching moment in her memory. We do get like a little taste of it. He's like crying when they like unveil her statue I know. in there. Mm-hmm. So, like, I love that so much. But I also love the fact that Emma planned that shit. <laughs> mm-hmm. I almost died. I was. She's like, "Oh no, Kate, darling. I, you know, I'm glad that you're happy. But I, I would have done this just to see the look on Charles and Magneto's face." I love Emma, but my God, what a bitch move! I mean, I, I so support it. That's you know that's what I that's exactly why I think it's you know it's very telling that she knows something right like it, mm-hmm. every every piece of it together really says something about you know the the motive behind inviting Xavier and Magneto there I mean the mm-hmm. fact that Moira's son is there and essentially like mourning her Mm-hmm. You know, really, it's it's really telling. Nothing is accidental with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I feel like Emma has to know something, but even if she doesn't know something, just because you know Xavier and Magneto have a history with Moira, obviously, but more than anybody else, really, except for maybe Banshee, which no one talks about anymore. I like the the touch of Proteus being there, and she could just be like, "Hot, you know, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna make sure like the woman that you have all these connections with that you never talk about anymore, that you pretend doesn't that never existed. Well, I'm gonna bring her son and your son." here mm-hmm. and just amp her up mm-hmm. since you never do i feel like that was really yeah nice well too. and i think that's 
that that is so quintessentially Emma Frost. When she does something, she doesn't do it half-assed, but she does it so subtly because there's like literally nothing that Charles or Magnus could say uh, 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 about that. And and, and like, what are you going to say, Magneto? Like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Really? I shouldn't have memorialized this woman who gave so much to make sure that some of us survive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, oh, she it was it was masterful that she did that which is you know emma forrest <laughs> right i feel like also this will go into the kink of how much shit is going to go down once mora gets revealed that she's still alive and that she's mutant and that she's had lives and that those have been alternate realities like this is just a, another cog in a machine of things that are going to go haywire as soon as everybody finds that out <laughs> mm-hmm. true, but true. now we move like we go back to or we go forward with something we touched on earlier which is having mutants use their powers for good like he is using his powers to help this deformed baby Mm -hmm. and that's amazing in a lot of places especially where there's a lot of people who don't have necessarily means or money a cleft palate it can be a very much life-altering you know deformity and yeah like there's there are ways for surgeons to like especially like doctors without borders i think like go into places like that and specifically look for children with that deformity so that they can fix it and i mean it leaves a little bit of a scar but it's also a huge boon or or just an amazing thing to have that reconstructive surgery that closes that cleft you know not only does it make speech easier but it also removes some of that stigma that a very prominent facial facial deformity could bring to this poor kid so yeah to see mask step in and use his powers in ways that he had not thought of Uh was just it was really it was heart heartrending it was it was so touching i mm. yay especially, especially since he's been a dick for like years it's like it's right? kind of nice to see him, <laughs> right? you know do something good mm-hmm. i know it's like we, we're turning all these villains into good people well not mostly all of them not like sinister or anything but well <laughs> sinister is like, sinister <laughs> sinister is sinister he's always gonna be that there's no reforming that but mask is a good reform person kind of person and i don't mm-hmm. know maybe the listeners i don't know if y'all watch uh cobra kai does anyone watch cobra kai occasionally okay well then you'll know what i'm talking about with the kid that has the the lip thing in cobra kai like this Mm -hmm. that's where my mind went to i was like oh my god we just need mask in the show and that will solve a lot of the problems (laughs) it'll make that kid not a target anymore and Mm -hmm. it kind of made me think what i wonder if he can like is it just like skin or can he like fix internal organs i think he can fix uh flesh and bone oh so could he make people that are like paralyzed not paralyzed anymore oh I like people that got know. accidents and they like they're paralyzed from like a car accident could he like mm-hmm. maybe fix their spinal cord or something or whatever is you know broken and like make I... them you know able huh i mean that would be interesting to see although i don't think his reconstructive powers maybe go that far like into mm-hmm. nervous system but it yeah, would be it would be interesting just, like, i think it's just like skin you know yeah more like surface level yeah exactly oh, okay still yeah, i don't think still really i don't cool. think he's ever been explored like that but you know what mm. you're what you're describing starts to sound more like a description of elixir mm. oh yeah it's true <laughs> or like maybe if he like died on a, a rocco or something you know that would be his Ooh. upgrade <laughs> oh yeah let's just let's just go kill him over there then bring him back real quick right? see what like, happens hey, I'm, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm saying I'm, I'm just saying <laughs> 
<laughs> well, now we're going to this bar <laughs> that they bought on Mandapore. And I just love when heroes go into like a more like um central public place and know where the heroes mm-hmm. at and they just come in their costumes. Right. And it's just like, yep, this is just normal. Bobby's just a whole thing of ice <laughs> just walking into the bar. That's normal. Right. It's fine. <laughs> it just right. makes me laugh. It's fine. It's fine. It's just, and like yeah. everybody it was funny like to watch everybody turn around like uh <laughs> And but the art was until, also awesome. until until they pull out like the money and they're like, "Hey, we want to buy your bar and everything in right. it and everything that's attached to it." And then the guy doesn't really hate them, <laughs> right? He's right, like, like, "Oh, rolls of money, sure, I'll take that." <laughs> it, it honestly looked like they had just been do, doing some back alley gambling or something because it it wasn't even stacks of money; it was just rolls of money. It's like, oh, dude, seriously? Okay. Oh, and a little a little um quick bit of another issue that came out this week that actually is like connected to this but not really it's like the before of how they got the money it's in the newest savage avengers Mm-hmm. I feel like cool. Deadpool, Conan, and Deadpool, Conan, and somebody else, I forget, are like um, mm-hmm. going into the old Hellfire Club. And apparently Emma and, you know, I guess the Marauders in general keep a lot of their like money and bags there just for like rainy days. Mm-hmm. So which doesn't mm-hmm. seem the smartest, but <laughs> so right? the Deadpool and Conan are going to go like steal that money for something. I forget what it is, but it's all Probably hygiene. Probably tacos. Right. And Iceman, Bishop, and Callisto come through the gate and they're like, what? the hell are you doing and they like fight them and everything and in the end they get the money but i'm just like oh so that tied right into marauders which makes sense because gary dugan <laughs> also writes savage avengers so <laughs> oh, nice oh yeah that's right oh shit that's right <laughs> right so ah well played sir well played right i wonder if he knew they were going to come out the same week probably not but it's it's a fun coincidence mm-hmm. but now after they buy the bar we go to like some secret lab where they're making more reavers which i'm like ugh, i didn't I did not want to see them again, honestly, but it's kind of cool, but I didn't want to. Well, I mean, Reavers are kind of like that perfect throwaway bad guy in a way. Like, mm-hmm. you know exactly who they are. You know exactly what they are. Like, you know them. Like, even though they haven't been around for a bit, you know them. So It's so funny yeah. that you call them, like, throwaway bad guys because, like, I feel like I never knew any of their names and you could just replace them with another human with some uh, tech parts. And, yeah, that's exactly what they are to me. Just, mm-hmm. just like, just, you know, goons. throw in a new one. <laughs> right? Well, I mean, that's the, I think that's kind of the the whole uh, their whole role. Because I mean, look at who they were. They were mercs and security and whatnot who decided to step up to the mutants on a number of occasions and literally got cut down either by Wolverine or by Iceman or by Gorgon. You know, in in both in Madripoor and Davos. So like. <laughs> These were the guys who just didn't have the fortune to die. Yeah. So yeah, I mean they were they were they were fodder beforehand. <laughs> They're fodder now. They it reminds me of like the the putty people in Power Rangers. <laughs> they, they just keep producing them and producing them and they just keep, mm-hmm. you know, getting their butt kicks over and over and over. But you know, what if it ain't broke or if it even if it is broke, don't fix it. Let's just keep doing it. So <laughs> Right? Oh my god. 
I do appreciate that these uh, new Reavers are are very much a callback to the original Reavers, in which I believe it's just a bunch of uh, maybe like Hellfire goons that Wolverine had cut up but not killed, and basically were you know outfitted with technology so they could get revenge. And yeah. that, that, I think that's very much what we have here, but it's a whole it's a whole new group, um, which is which is so exciting to see, especially with this new design. It feels reminiscent of Krakoan technology in a way too mm -hmm. uh, something is. about it like it's so much more organic than we're used to seeing for the reavers yeah definitely so yeah i get i get a lot of forge vibes in in kind of their their weapons and their overall look mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. i definitely see that i always find it really ironic when these humanoid villains like change themselves or add equipment or like do things to their own body to try mm -hmm. to fight the mutants because i'm like so you're basically not human anymore but you're fighting for the human race because mutants are taking over but you're you're basically becoming like a mutant person so it doesn't make <laughs> sense but you know hate doesn't make sense so that's very on point <laughs> exactly. well yeah and, and the reavers i think they were originally recreated back in the 90s sure having all this uh, very technological you know tank wheels and you know, big guns and all that kind of stuff. It, yeah, it made sense. It was the 90s. Everything it was, you know, blow it up and walk away without looking at the explosion kind of stuff. But I really like this revamp because it's so much sleeker and more modern. And yeah, like you said, it kind of has a little bit of uh, reminiscence to Krakoan technology, which kind of makes me think that maybe there are people out there who are already trying to replicate Krakoan technology by either observing it or by by picking up samples of it um, when, you know, people come through gates or when people die or, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it was interesting and weird. And their doctor's name was Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, right. That was crazy. Frankenstein. I, I, it was very on the nose. Mm -hmm. um, but we be, we definitely know if, if listeners, if you've already read um, the recent cable issue, we already know that people are taking and, uh, and the recent X-Force issue that people are taking like, you know, their dead bodies and morphing them. Like Young Cable's body and Quentin Quire's body, like they're they're mm -hmm. taking the dead bodies and morphing them and using them to their own manipulation powers. Which I mean, the Krakoans got to get better at that. Start cleaning up your messes. Right. Don't just leave dead bodies everywhere. Right? You can't you can't be doing that. Have we learned nothing from well, the even, past? Even in even in uh, X Force too, with like like the Peacock Man in that in the first mm -hmm. arc. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's some more like replicating there too. Oh yeah, with Domino. That's mm -hmm. right. Yeah, but I yeah. mean you would you would think they would be smart enough to pick up after themselves if they could like mm -hmm. just kind of leaving anything hanging around would not be i'm guessing a very good thing because they know that there are scientists out there willing to experiment on mutants why wouldn't you at least think that there might be scientists out there willing to experiment on dead mutants mm. and the, i feel like those cases like quentin choir and with domino is very good examples on why no more solo missions should mm -hmm. be a thing don't go anywhere alone anymore that's how you get captured experimented on and killed <laughs> right right but just i saying. mean just speaking of not being alone anymore you know pyro and iceman and bishop are having this like <laughs> this friendship thing and i really love it like i like them being like bros with each other and just having a drink i think it's really nice mm -hmm. unfortunately it gets interrupted by the racists <laughs> <laughs> It's also like a really good way because these three characters, well, Iceman a little less, but they they haven't really been featured a lot in Marauders, and we're getting to see like a little bit of more of, of them, and it and it seems like that's mm -hmm. the direction that it's going.
going in. Like Cable has been taking a little bit more of a lead on the battlefront kind of side. And then Kitty mm-hmm. is, well, she got promoted and she's kind of helping Emma more with like the administrative stuff. <laughs> you can get Bishop and Cable mixed up too because they're both time traveling people. Oh, did, so. I say, did I say Cable? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's all good. Hey. They're both from different times, and they travel a lot. So they're kind of the same. Just Bishop isn't a Summers, thankfully. I know. I'm, so I'm, I'm also even looking at the, the panel yeah. right now. <laughs> <laughs> they both have light-up eyes. Ugh. <laughs> right? <laughs> but, oh, my yeah, gosh. No, Can it... I pitch a story where Bishop is also, like, a um, not a not a Summers brother, but, like, a long-lost distant relative to the Summers? <laughs> Like cousin three times removed. Oh, oh God! Please no. We don't need any more summers, people. We have enough. Like I, I disagree. I, oh God! But I know. That's fine. That's fine. There's a many summers. There need to be. A we few just winters. officially got a new one. Well, Did we? Let's not. Did we just like last, like like last? Oh, week? I haven't or read that this is week. The, I mean, it, this is week. it the X Men Legends? I haven't read it yet. <laughs> yeah, it is. But <laughs> I heard about it. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> they get their butts handed to them a little bit when they first get ambushed but then they take control really fast pyro iceman i mean it was an ambush i mean you know yeah it is what that is but yeah i I do love that they're like yeah we're gonna sit down have a bros day out let's get some let's get some drinks and uh celebrate before we just retrofit this whole damn thing (laughs) yeah it it does really well and it's a good like expression or showcase of their powers especially Mm -hmm. when we can talk about it now when you know bishop gets shot and he's like i'm an arm don't shoot but he's like hot suckers because he wants them to shoot him and that brings up you know a controversy that was a little bit online this week it wasn't a controversy though well controversy because people were saying that they didn't like it it's not like a it's controversy in the sense meaning even if it was blown up blown up proportion or not still a controversy even if we agree with it or not it was it was absolutely misrepresented like oh, yeah i was i was trying to see it from the quote-unquote both sides for a good minute and then i fully read the comic and like really like thought about it and i'm like this was literally his plan mm-hmm. literally his plan like everybody else is using their powers he has noticed that these idiots use uh energy weapons because you know they they don't have you know giant boxes of ammo strapped to their body kind of thing it's like he <laughs> was in the middle of a firefight kind of literally <laughs> with pyro being there but no like he was literally in the middle of a, in a firefight he knew that they were trying to kill him and he knew that they were going to shoot him whether or not he was returning fire so like it wasn't like they shot him in the back it wasn't like they said something you know horrifyingly racist to the black man first they were shooting at any mutant and he used their lack of knowledge about his powers to get a big old power up because it literally the very next panel is ha suckers like this was his freaking plan to get shot yes and for the listeners who maybe don't understand what we're talking about because i mean not everyone lives on twitter not everyone Mm. sees everything with the whole black lives matter movement a lot of the saying is you know hands up don't shoot you know Mm -hmm. for a lot because a lot of black men 
and black people have said that when police officers are coming after them so bishop saying i'm unarmed don't shoot is very you know similar to that and people were taking it in a more some people not everybody very very few people i feel like Mm -hmm. were taking it more in a negative way saying well this was distasteful and etc etc but i honestly feel like because gary dugan is very you've seen in the past in books that he's written but especially in the past marauders issues he's very like a spoken for i feel like justice and and social truth you know so i feel Mm -hmm. like this was even maybe it wasn't intended but i think it was uh a talk on that because i mean he did Mm -hmm. say may have him say i'm unarmed don't shoot which is very similar Mm -hmm. probably couldn't make him say you know hands up or whatever he didn't want to be blatant about it right but then he makes him obviously bishop can get shot by energy he turns it around on the bigoted racist mutant haters Mm -hmm. which is also like a bunch of white people like i don't think that's Mm -hmm. a coincidence and he takes them all out because of that and makes it so iceman him and pyro can escape so he makes the the black mutant the most powerful one in that situation and they are able to escape you know the press and all that because of him Mm -hmm. so he makes them in charge of that racist situation and kind of turns the tables in that situation where we can't really do that in real life but Mm -hmm. he was made it so this black person can in this comic book you know use the hate that's getting onto them or that danger is getting onto them and turn it around to the oppressor so Mm -hmm. that's how i saw it when i read it and that's how i thought other people were gonna see it too until i got on the internet and i was like oh so people did not see what i saw (laughs) yeah well and and what irritated me about this controversy is it was so contrived it was there to i guess sort of work certain people up but it it was such a not the way they were presenting it because they were presenting it as being very very racist and out of line and wholly distasteful and blah 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 and i'm looking at it going it's i don't know i guess yes i could see where some people might not like the way that it was presented but the same point in time by screaming and shouting and yelling about something that is really not that controversial and making it out to be uh super controversial and racist to say that you've taken away a lot of legitimacy from black voices because now people who are actually racist are gonna look at it and go oh see you just find anything to be upset about and here we have the proof because you know you know this this non-controversy thing and you're just calling everything racist it's like you've you've now damaged uh people of color especially black voices when we bring legitimate complaints to the table because you're making this very non-controversial line you're misrepresenting it and you're misrepresenting what's going on and you're trying to take a stab at a person who for the most part has been very much an ally to social justice which we are a part of so yeah I I was not I was not happy about that to say the least I mean one thing about it is I see both sides and I'm white so I kind of Mm. you know I agree with what both of you are saying but it is kind of funny I guess that's kind of like the fun of like the X-Men is like with having a lot of diverse characters is that Mm -hmm. you can start to look at stuff this way is you know is it racist or is it not racist and you can have like a little bit more of an intellectual conversation um, Mm -hmm. about these kinds of topics and not just in like comics you can in all the literature but you know it's just you know I'm just I was just enjoying listening to your conversation (laughs) (laughs) no worries yeah no, no, no you're absolutely right 
Yeah, and I—I I mean, honestly, I hope we can shed some light on it. And I don't—I don't. At first, I was like, "Oh, they're—they're they're wrong." You know, don't—don't mm-hmm. don't blow it out proportion, blah blah. And you know, I, like like you have said, Raven, don't blow out proportion. Let's not attack our allies. Mm-hmm. But I mean, and like you were even saying, Drew, I can—I was trying to understand their point, and I do understand their point. I mean, as a as a black man, how can I not understand their their point of you know not wanting to see that or being like, I don't want a white man to write it. But mm-hmm. I would. I said this before in in our little podcast chat <laughs> that we there there are a lot of white writers. That's just how mm-hmm. it. That's just what it is. We're getting we're getting more women of color, people of color, and all that jazz and non-binary people. But there's still a lot of white men writers. And do you mm-hmm. want them only to white? To, <laughs> do you want them to only? <laughs> oh man, I was on a, such a good roll with not I know, right. <laughs> Anyway, do you want them to only write white men? Because because mm-hmm. I I actually heard I saw a lot of people's posts. It's like, oh well, he should just stick to writing white men. It's like so that's what they did for years in like the sixties mm-hmm. and seventies and all that. We barely had any people of color and everything. Our women in mm-hmm. general, if for that either, maybe one in in the group. <laughs> um, right. But now we have a lot more of all of that. Still could use more, but we have a lot more than we did in like the sixties. So mm-hmm. given that do if you want more diversity and you know we still have these top writers why do you want them to only write you know white people like right i can see get that in gary's you know research i mean in his writings he's done the research for you know other characters in this and that and even when he had that whole controversy with kate in the in the whole jewish thing he because i'm not jewish so i can't really speak on that but i saw that mm-hmm. he took in you know that information and was like hey i saw that you know i didn't tend to write it that way you know that's Mm -hmm. not what i meant but i know some more devout jewish people did not you know like her being burned and all that you know Mm -hmm. some jewish people were okay with her cremation some Mm -hmm. are like oh not as you know devout but Mm -hmm. some are so he said i will take that into account thank you for you know teaching me Mm -hmm. and i'm glad that we we get that with them you know and if he if he wasn't writing those characters or if he wasn't choosing to you know write bishop and kate and emma and Callisto and all of them, we wouldn't get these scenes. We've gotten so many good scenes with Bishop, especially the last issue with the King and Black tie-in. That was a really good issue with him. And we've gotten amazing scenes with Emma and Callisto and with Storm with mm-hmm. em- the Emma, and I mean that Callisto and Storm issue before when they were fighting. So if we only had Gary Dugan write the White Men, the Iceman Pyro and all that, we wouldn't mm-hmm. get those scenes. So, right. and then we probably wouldn't even get those characters at all because what other books are they even in? Mm-hmm. And, and so, that's the whole thing is if, if he he did not do stuff with the Jewish characters, if he did not do stuff with the black characters or with uh, the characters who have uh, disabilities and whatnot, you would actually be cutting down the diversity. You'd be cutting out uh, a lot of the uh, not only just differently abled people, but also people of color from the books. And you'd have a very whitewashed book. And I mean, he's he's seen in the past, like when people, like you said, with the, with the, with the Jewish burial rites and whatnot, usually... Um, devout Jews will be buried um, whole and that is very much part of their tradition and he didn't know and he went about it the wrong way but he acknowledged it and said that he would do better going forward so like yeah (laughs) if you didn't have him writing these characters you'd be complaining 
that were not being represented in comics. So it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. And I would prefer to have the representation and then need to gently educate and push our allies forward so that they do better next time than not be represented at all. Yeah. And I, we've had writers that have had, you know, people of color on the cat in, in the, in the superhero group and they just been in the background. They're like, mm-hmm. yeah, they're there, but they've had like two lines, the whole issue. Mm-hmm. Like Gary Dugan is putting these women and people of color in the forefront and being mm-hmm. leaders. And I don't think he's getting there, like not to up this like white man too much because I mm-hmm. do think he's a good writer, but I'm not like just advocating for him, just to advocate for him because mm-hmm. I do, I actually like his writing, but I don't think he's getting, you know, their spirit wrong either. Like yeah. people were saying that Bishop wouldn't say I'm unarmed, don't shoot. <laughs> I've So I've read a lot of Bishop content, the old and the mm-hmm. new, and he is very like playful in that kind of aspect and sarcastic. Oh, yeah. And he mm-hmm. will let himself, he's let himself get shot a lot of times just to play possum mm-hmm. and then take over this situation because that's literally his power. So mm-hmm. absolutely. <laughs> like how that's that's how Bishop is. That's literally how he's been. That's his character. That's his characteristics as well. So mm-hmm. I <laughs> not to like stay on this soapbox because we've d- done it for a while but it is an important conversation I, I I will finish by saying I see people's point of view but let's try to you know dig a little deeper and not be so reactionary and mm-hmm. also not attack our allies with such velocity with such aggression because mm-hmm. when you attack our allies with such aggression they don't talk to us anymore and they leave you know the, so- the social aspect you have with the fans like look what happened with hickman Mm -hmm. so hickman literally left twitter because he actually started you know talking about and trying to advocate for the black lives matter movement and then people said he wasn't doing it right or that he did it too late and this and that and that and i'm like y'all that is not that that is not he he is not even that big of a like a celebrity and it's not his only job to do that Mm -hmm. he's already putting more people of color and all that in his writings he's doing that Mm -hmm. with his writings and we don't know what he's donating to right and he was barely on twitter as it was he's just post about movies and then x-men that's about it yeah so again yeah and you're right and yeah by doing so that gives cannon fodder to actually shitty people because now they have examples of see this is what you do when you try and help them quote unquote Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah constructive let's let's educate instead of attack Mm -hmm. and let's also think about it before we type (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) let's help our allies become better allies and work with us instead of you know be annoyed and not want to work with us anymore because we attacked them for something that they're actually trying to help us on mm-hmm. rod you just made me realize that the perfect mutant name for bishop because we've been calling him by his last name this whole time um is possum <laughs> uh yes i would i would personally be okay with that <laughs> but again i don't think a lot of people would be okay with that i just thought that was a really fun way to explain bishop because you're right like that's so in character for him he really will take take the heat in a situation you know like draw attention mm-hmm. so that he can absorb the energy and throw it back like that i mean that is a, just like you're saying that's how his power works so um it just made me laugh so i had to say it 
I don't want to call Bishop Possum. I like calling. Him <laughs> yeah. I I definitely get the joke. I, de- I de- and more honestly, more to that point, Bishop does need a, a like a, a a code name. Yeah. Because what is his code name? It's just Bishop. Yeah. So, yeah. but also same thing could be said technically for Kate. I mean, she's the Red Queen now, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I mean, still. or even Jean. Our Jean, Marvel girl. Oh God. Yeah. So. <laughs> She's Marvel woman, so exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I, mean, I, I, almost, I, I almost feel like you could make kind of this a similar argument for Emma because you know calling her the White Queen really was more of a title holdover from Hellfire, mm-hmm. you know, and it didn't, especially like when she ascend, at one point when she ascended to being the the you know Black King was like you know <laughs> it just gets a little a little muddy, you know. We're talking about titles mm-hmm. versus like your mutant name or superhero name but anyway <laughs> i digress yeah calling her white queen or black queen now is definitely not as great as it used to be yeah that should <laughs> honestly be thought through it's like mm might want to change that yeah uh, during the hellfire time and era that was you know it made sense and Mm -hmm. and it was not as seen under a microscope i feel like in today's time and age it's it's not great (laughs) i would i would suggest she needs a new name as well i feel like just a whole hell even to go on a more expansive point i feel like the whole hellfire thing should be more evaluated and transformed into something i mean it is being transformed into something else but just like a new name for anyway because hellfire just sounds so i mean it was evil so mm-hmm. it's it's still like it has such an evil connotation hellfire club like that does it yeah. doesn't sound like a good organization so. <laughs> right you're like oh i'm part of the hellfire club yeah that's never gonna fly <laughs> <laughs> but you know speaking of evil organizations the reavers are you know basically taken over or have taken over amanda poor despite the you know marauders you know trying that's to stop them from doing that <laughs> and now well, they mean, have go ahead go ahead sorry 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 oh, too much no, caffeine. Good. i was I, I mean you're probably just gonna say what i was gonna say i was gonna mm-hmm. say that the the reavers are taking over with the little children now and mm-hmm. making they made it so manda like the krakoa can't even go on mandapore anymore or at least not legally so yeah well and i mean that was their whole move was to to like and then bishop even pointed that it's like oh crap this was a setup like this wasn't i mean i don't see how they could have gotten out of that fight without fighting but yeah they were totally set up to make it look like they started a street fight mm-hmm. and it started blowing shit up so it's definitely if you didn't if you didn't fight back you'd be dead but in fighting back you got set up to look like the bad guy um and i think this is the only part of the book that i had a little trouble with the pacing of it has it felt like they they needed just like maybe one more page yeah we we go over to the un and we see you know the representative of of the Verendi you know like oh my god look at this they're just of course we don't have these things and when we do you know we're suddenly taken over by these you know random mutants from this foreign country and look at all the co- trouble they're causing heck their their representative didn't even show up I'm like okay I would have loved to have seen like I would have loved to have seen like Bishop and them coming back and going we got a problem and like maybe just a, like a quick take on oh, okay we've got to really think this over by either like Emma Frost or Charles or somebody to kind of give us a hint at why the Krako 
heroine ambassador didn't show up. I needed that just one more beat. I absolutely agree, Davin. I this I you know I love the information pages that we get mm-hmm. in this whole you know docs pox hawks rocks era. <laughs> <laughs> I think I added another hawks in there, but oh well. Um, I love the information pages. Like the, the one of my favorite things that Hickman has quote unquote invented. I guess I don't know if it was around before mm-hmm. him, not to this extent. But yeah, I feel like Watchmen. We, oh, you know what? It kind of wasn't Watchmen. You're right. You're right. I think he kind of just expanded on that. But you're mm-hmm. right. It wasn't Watchmen. But I feel like we could have transformed this one data page, or at least made it into two, into actual, you know, mm-hmm. comic book pages where we saw Beast. I mean, Bishop go to Beast, and maybe mm-hmm. you know, like you said, maybe Magneto or at least Emma was there. Somebody on the council was there, you know, and talking with them. And then maybe in like in between panels of them talking to each other, we see like the news outlets, Amanda Poor, you know, saying mm-hmm. about you know the mutant attack and that how it's like you know a terrorist attack on Mandapore and blah blah like just more context then yeah. then we get the, you know the whole UN thing like it would mm-hmm. it would it would help the pacing better and it would seem I feel like it would have a harder hit yeah know? absolutely you know but, for the first time in my recent memory I actually disagree with both of you I feel like we always agree what? on everything um, how I know, dare you I know and this is where the podcast uh, has its schism. <laughs> We're gonna I quit. Sides afterwards. <laughs> Sorry, everybody, for ruining access for podcasts. Um, <laughs> this is that defining moment. No, I, you know, I actually felt like leaving us with that question, that really, mm-hmm. like, not getting that extra bit of what are the Krakoans thinking, what's going to happen, right? Besides the the data page with Bishop. I think that shows the power play that uh, Verendi is really trying to use. They obviously mm. planned it so that there wasn't Krakoan representation. They manipulated mm. the situation so that the media was there to catch the fight. Like they've, they're, they're really good at planning. I mean, for, mm-hmm. for most of the series, like they've not done very well. They haven't been super successful. But to a degree, they they are, and they're finally showing fruition of of those plans. And so, for me to see see it like that, those last two pages where it's like the UN and Verendi, and we're missing the Krakoan element, like I think that was, I think it's actually really brilliant because if somebody was there, obviously, like they would have an argument for what happened for those events. And instead, mm-hmm. we have a brilliant supervillain move where they have manipulated the situation and they're completely controlling the narrative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it will be addressed next issue, if not later, you know, at some point. But but I I, I liked it as an ending for this because I felt like it's a good cliffhanger in a sense. So uh, I agree that like I thought the pacing was kind of off when I first read this. We kind of got two like shocker moments with this. Usually it's only one, mm-hmm. um, which mm-hmm. I never complain about a good like shock ending, you know, <laughs> like we, we get that the, they're trying to get to Krakoa and this like why didn't they show up so i think once this comes to like a trade and you're reading it all the way through once mm-hmm. the beat hits in the next issue it would be a little bit smoother yeah, but true. for reading it in like a issue form it's kind of like ah. some you can take it in a good way or you can take it that in a bad way it, de- it depends on how you look at it mm, true enough true enough so i definitely agree with um dante and Drew's side as well like i'm i'm kind of halfway now i keep changing my mind i'm like in the <laughs> middle now with that but one of the things i was thinking about while everyone was talking i wonder since they said you know i wonder who the ambassador from kokoa is this week so right. I, that was that was shade that was shady Ooh, so yeah. obviously you 
you know, Krakoa has had many different ambassadors come through, mm-hmm. which makes sense because there's so many mutants, so many leaders. So they don't have ever the same one and people get busy on Krakoa because there's mm-hmm. a lot of missions. There's <laughs> a lot so of missions, y'all, right? <laughs> Good ways and bad ways, naughty mm-hmm. ways and not so naughty ways. Um, so let, I want to kind of go down the list and uh, Raven, I'm going to put you on the spot and probably go to you first. <laughs> who okay. would we... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> who, would, who would you want to see as oh who do you think would be the best person to be probably as the main representative of Krakoa on the United Nations oh see that's difficult because I like Emma definitely needs to kind of remain on Krakoa to be on the council and to you know run the shipping and whatnot and Kate is definitely like the captain of the ship so that needs to happen um I would never send Sinister because <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's no. Just, just no that's that's a horrible idea so I'm, I'm kind of trying to think of of who would be like really good and diplomatic and could honestly use like way more FaceTime. <laughs> I have I, my answer. Oh, <laughs> if I can just jump in while you're. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Please, please. By all means, get me out of this. <laughs> I can, I can see easily one of two people, but my, my first initial reaction was Storm. We have mm. someone who is eloquent, has presence can be very passionate, can be mm-hmm. firm when needed. I can't think of anybody who would be more perfect to represent Krakoa than Storm. Oh, you know what? Callisto. Like, not only does she already have some pull at the hospital and she's employing, like, the some of the Morlocks to do good things, she was the leader of the Morlocks for a very long time and in many ways still is. If she has a commanding presence, she is actually pretty decently diplomatic and, and you know, eloquent I think she could step up to the plate and be the representative. And that way, not only is she representing Morlocks, she's representing Mutantdom and Krakoa. And I, I think she could really pull off that position. Oh, I, very Two very good choices, honestly. What about you, Drew? Yeah, I'm thinking about this too. And Dante, I actually, I think Storm is the right pick because... Like, like it is just like the perfect rule for her just like everything you said like i really agree with storm mm-hmm. nice i'm a little biased obviously because i i mean everyone loves storm but i i love storm a little bit a lot so <laughs> <laughs> i might be a little biased when i say i agree with dante I would say the only reason I probably wouldn't agree with Dante and go with more Callisto if we had it between the two is because I don't think Storm would want to do it. I mm-hmm. I think she would feel obligated to do it and would probably mm-hmm. and probably maybe has done it for one of the weeks because they said, you know, they had, you know, rollover weeks for many members there. But I don't like she's even thinking about leaving Marauders and doing something, maybe even going to space just because she doesn't feel fulfilled, you know? So mm-hmm. I don't think she's already been in like a queen position and those leader type positions. I don't think she would be fulfilled by this. I think she would probably get bored, especially mm-hmm. with all the Democratic people around her. She would be like, I don't like this. So mm-hmm. that's why I feel like Callisto would probably feel more in her element and would probably get off on rousing the people around her. <laughs> you know, yeah. getting the rousing the politicians around her and just, just getting a jab at them. And she's really quick-witted, so this would be a good moment for her, too. The only thing is, is wouldn't you want, like, a 
council member on the like to be the representative just because well, I think, true no because if you have if you have a council member sitting there at the un you know having to travel back and forth and whatnot then what if the council needs to suddenly convene mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that might because that might cause a bit of a conflict because you have to be kind of present when you're the ambassador for you know the un so yeah well that and, and storm has been having so much like fulfilling um interaction teaching new young mutants how to use their powers and whatnot and i i love seeing her fulfilled mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i also really like the idea of more roles being outside of the can- council just for the simple reason that we have the council there to listen to requests or make decisions we need somebody separate from that to present you know present cases or present you know this is this is the idea for krakoa moving forward if it's always coming from the council then it really just feels like we're being controlled by the council right it doesn't feel like mm-hmm. krakoa is for everybody at that point so i feel like seeing more diversity in roles other than than council members is, is kind of a good idea mm-hmm. mm-hmm. i definitely yes yeah, yeah i definitely mm-hmm. agree i feel like some people would probably say cyclops but i feel mm-hmm. like cyclops has had enough airtime, mm-hmm. and also he's i mean he's been i don't think earth has forgotten how much of a terrorist he was so i don't think yeah, that would be yeah. good for <laughs> you'd want like a leader in that position and he's not a leader mm-hmm. like that i would never put cyclops in that position i would want him on the field because he's really mm-hmm. good with like tactics and stuff like that so why would i like waste his talent sitting at a like at a desk you know talking mm-hmm. to people i want him on the field telling people where to go what to do yeah. i will politely disagree as the resident <laughs> cyclops stand see i knew they that. were there <laughs> See, the stands are listening. The Cyclops stands are everywhere. You just got to watch out for them. So, <laughs> well, and as much as I love Cyclops, and I and I do think he's a great leader, but I think, and I still agree, like that, it's not really the role for Cyclops. But what I want to see is someone who is passionate and mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. compassion. Uh, mm-hmm. And that, that, you know, again, that's why I say I think Storm is perfect for it. Whether I would want to actually see Storm in that role is something else altogether. Mm-hmm. But she just True. embodies so much of what I think would be an amazing representation for Krakoa. I can only imagine Callisto getting mad and yelling at all the human. Oh, but oh, I don't yeah. think she would. I, I honestly don't think she would because, I mean, I also went with Callisto because Storm loves her and trusts her as an equal. Mm. So I don't think Storm would invest that much emotion and and uh, time and effort and like deep-seated love and care to a person that she couldn't trust to like be able to like hold themselves, you know, in accord when, you know, basically a child is mouthing off, oh, you're a politician that's cute <laughs> yeah you're gonna run your mouth but you know yeah sure and like i think she has wit quick enough that she could you know give subtle jabs back but i mean she's also been like a spy and she's used to um having to kind of weave her way through uh certain types of red tape and 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 bartering and bargaining and whatnot and having to deal with um people who think that they are superior to her and above her especially because she i think she would have a better connection to the poor people of Mandrapore because in many senses in many regards they're much like the Morlocks were so I'm, I'm just I'm just saying I'm just saying <laughs> I you I would say you all make great points I I definitely agree with all of it I personally want Storm to rule everything because I think she's perfect <laughs> yeah I know um, right even, even, even in her negatives I think she's perfect so <laughs> I would love to hear maybe what our listeners think on the subject matter who do you mm-hmm. think would be a great representative 
of Kokoa on the UN. Oh, yes. Listeners who are still listening at this point, this is like, the, you better be listening. You better want to listen to us, first of all. Um, <laughs> but if you have a different choice other than Storm or Callisto or Cyclops, I guess, <laughs> please reply to the post that this is on and tell us what your pick would be. Mm-hmm. Put pictures on that post as well. We need right. replies with pictures. Yeah. Pictures always make everything better. Right. So let's get our final thoughts on this issue. Raven, what are your final thoughts on on Marauders 18. I think overall it was uh it was well done and I know that it's probably a really good setup for more to come cuz <laughs> Emma Frost would not just do everything she's done without thinking it like 20 steps ahead. So I can't wait to see how they are going to kind of either circumvent, dodge around or come back from, from this, uh, you know, media blitz that they got hit by. So it's going to be interesting and I can't wait. Nice. What about you, Dante? Overall, really great issue. The art is stellar. Like it's just so visually appealing, really pulls me in. I will say, you know, for once, I'm, I'm really starting to kind of feel issues with pacing, or maybe maybe pacing isn't even the right word. Maybe the storytelling, I'm noticing more and more mm-hmm. is focusing very heavily on certain characters, and we don't get kind of a, a nice general mix as much as I would really like. And I think that's actually maybe kind of true for Marauders as a whole uh, series. Mm-hmm. So it just feels, sometimes it just feels a little imbalanced for me, and I can't help but start to notice it more and more. But I really did enjoy the story. I loved that we started in a place where like mutants were on top looking amazing doing great things and by the end the villains have flipped the script on Krakoa Mm -hmm. and you know like taking over Madripoor I always like to call the Verendi the Hellfire Kids because that's how I always kind of (laughs) think of them but I I love the use of those characters because they you know I think they were introduced in Wolverine and the X-Men and it was so fun to have kids versus kids right it was because it was a student (laughs) book um, mm-hmm. But I love I love their use in this title because it's really kids versus adults and you kind of want to write them off in a lot of ways. And really, they haven't been super successful for most of the series, but they are these powerful, rich, entitled kids who are using their money and power to do what they want. And it's it's mm-hmm. just it's such a fascinating dichotomy between, you know, what we're getting from Krakoa and for Verendi. So I'm excited to see where it goes, as always. I'm a, I'm a, a pretty big fan. Yeah, for me, um, I generally, I liked this issue. I like Marauders overall, but it's it's kind of middle of the road for me. I'm not really, like, obsessed with it, but um, I don't hate, like, I'm not canceling it either, you know? It's definitely not in my top three, maybe not even in my top five, but... It's maybe number six. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I honestly, that brings me to how I'm feeling. I I really enjoy Marauders. It was my top three when it first started. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is no negative really to the story. I think it's just how the story's playing out, just because of how everywhere the other characters have to be. But like, I, fr- I think it was Dante that said it that the characters don't get as much focus, like maybe like in Sword or X Factor or even the um, the main X Men title. If they don't really have a core group but we still get to see so many different you know character moments in it and we get to see character moments in marauders but i would like to have like a mixture of seeing all the characters a little bit more you know but i feel like that's just how maybe gary dugan writes because i see the same kind of style in savage avengers and it's just savage avengers is also kind of like the same kind of dynamic where the team is kind of everywhere they're not really together Mm -hmm. that much and marauders is not really together that much either except when they're basically on the boat and that's about it so i kind of get the 
the the style of the story in that kind of way but i feel like it would be in my top three again if we had Mm -hmm. more of a balance of characters in every issue or at least every other issue yeah i can agree with that but Mm -hmm. i did like this i did like this issue and i feel like it hit a lot of great points with you know helping you know the downtrodden because you know Mm -hmm. they're they have you know money to actually help people so they are helping the humans even though they don't have to (laughs) they're using mutant powers for good and show that you know even people that have a a past can still be good and you were having you know social Mm -hmm. messages even if they were you know implemented on purpose or not they're still there 